Firefighting is essential for our communities, but it's not easy. With increased heat loads and toxic substances, the job today is more dangerous than ever. At MSA, your health and safety drive us to develop highly advanced safety equipment to protect you on the job. MSA's Globe Gear is performance and protection in perfect balance. It's designed to meet the challenges you face every day to help keep you safe and healthy during your career and beyond. Get the full story at msafire.com slash globe. Hello and welcome to Today on Firehouse podcast. I'm Peter Matthews, the editor of Firehouse, and uh, we're excited to have uh, Chief Brian Helmick today from the East Contra Costa County um, Fire Protection District in California. Um, his fire district and the chief made the news a couple of weeks ago uh, when the department went out with a statement stating that uh, due to budget and funding issues, they're going to change uh, their, their tactics to focus on defensive attacks when necessary uh, to, to focus on firefighter safety uh, due to the budget issues in his fire district. So, so Chief, thank you for joining us today. And, and before we jump into the, the meat of the podcast, um, just tell us a little bit about your background in the fire service, um, uh, you know, where you, where you are um, now and, and where you've come from. Very good. Well, thank you, uh, Peter, for the opportunity to be here today. I do feel privileged uh, to have an opportunity to share the district's story. And my story uh, started in the 90s. Um, out of high school, um, I was being mentored and guided by some members of a local fire district called Moraga Fire Protection District, uh, which is now Moraga Renda Fire Protection District. And they had encouraged me uh, to pursue a career in the fire service, and I did. Um, I was fortunate to be an individual that got hired right out of high school um, as a reserve firefighter. I got into an academy a week after I got out of high school, uh, spent about two, three years in that position, and then uh, they encouraged me uh, to expand and get some more opportunities uh, in, in different aspects of firefighting. I worked as a type two firefighter for two seasons uh, through a group called the Davis Fire Crew. Um, it's a, we supported uh, type one hand crews throughout the state. And so I spent some time uh, doing that. And then they said, listen, um, you know, we, you need to get out and get some more structural firefighting, vehicle extrication, vegetation firefighting experience from an engine company perspective. And I ventured east to where actually I am now uh, as a volunteer. Uh, and I started being a volunteer in the late 90s. Um, the organization that I currently represent now is a fire chief. Uh, I, I served as a volunteer. Uh, we became a career organization in 2002. I was working uh, as a volunteer, uh, working in the, in, as an engineer, apparatus operator. And in 2002, I started over as a career firefighter. I progressed through the ranks. Um, I quickly had the opportunity to become an engineer, serve as an acting captain. A couple years after that, I became a captain. Um, I by the recommendations and support of my peers. Um, I progressed a little faster than I anticipated, but it became an operational line battalion chief uh, right around 2007, and I served in that capacity uh, until 2017. So I've served as the operations chief of the fire district, uh, training chief, prevention chief, and um, in 2017, I, through the other support of my members, I had the opportunity to become the interim fire chief and uh, in 2018, I became the permanent fire chief for the East Contra Costa Fire Protection District. So it has been a uh, crazy 20 plus, almost 25 years. And um, I have a, you know, I serve as a chaplain 
and I work in other aspects. Um, I've had the privilege also work with Firehouse in different capacities in the past. And so, um, look, this industry is great. It's, it's very challenging. I feel very blessed and privileged to serve in the capacity I'm in. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's been a very fast but yet long journey in the same way. Okay, and I guess it sounds like as we talk about about the whole situation today, these last three years have certainly uh, been a challenge. I mean, even to the most veteran experienced, um, you know, well-educated chief officer, the challenges that you'll discuss today, I don't know what can prepare you for those. So, um, so, so let's dig into the fire district a little bit. Tell us about um, about your district. You know, who you protect, uh, the size of your district, the number of stations, crew that you have on on, on staffing, et cetera. Yeah, so the East Contra Costa Fire Protection District, uh, we have historically had funding challenges. Um, as I stated to you, when I came out here, uh, we were primarily purely volunteer. We've been having fire protection in this area that we serve since about the 1920s. Um, there's been multiple volunteer agencies, a combination agency. In 2002, we came purely professional career 24-7 operations. Uh, the, the footprint of the jurisdiction is large. Uh, we cover 250 square miles. Uh, which is uh, incorporates two cities and multiple townships in the unincorporated areas of our county. So in the 250 square miles, we have Brentwood, Oakley, Knightson, Bethel Island, Discovery Bay, Knightson, Marsh Creek, Morgan Territory. So there's a, there's multiple communities within our jurisdiction. We have 128,000 residents that will swell to approximately 150 plus uh, people within our jurisdiction when you incorporate the businesses in our jurisdiction. We run about 7,700 calls per year. Uh, it takes about 10,000 pieces of equipment to mitigate those 7,700 calls. And here's the challenging part. We're doing it currently with three staff stations 24-7 with three firefighters at each station for a total of nine firefighters on per day. We have multiple studies and everyone understands and agrees we have an existing three station deficit. And we also know that over the next 20 years as growth continues, uh, according to the general plans of the city and the county, that we'll need an additional three stations for a total of nine. So we have three stations today that cover 250 square miles, answering approximately 8,000 calls. Um, we have many days of which we are not able to answer all the 911 calls that come in. And so we are straining uh, our relationships with outside and our partner agencies that, uh, that border us, um, our automatic aid agreements, uh, we stress a mutual aid system on a regular basis. And so, although administratively, we are sustainable at a three-station model, operationally, we are not. So, three stations today, three-station deficit, and we have a growth challenge, too. And, and that's just, I mean, that's incredible, uh, you know, let alone just three personnel on a rig, which, unfortunately, is, is common in a lot of places across the country, whether it's a fully career agency or not. Um, so, so those companies, I mean, what, what is, even with your mutual aid partners, what is some of the response times for your, your first and secondary companies? Can you meet um, the 1710 standards for response times in some situations? Absolutely not. No, no. We, we, are, we are nowhere near the 1710 recommendations and responses. Uh, we average approximately, if we're lucky, in the cities, uh, 7 and 30 second response time. Although um, some of the areas or components of the cities will be closer to eight minutes and 30 seconds. And uh, we have response times in the unincorporated areas and the borders of our jurisdictions that will go up to 20 plus minute response times. And the, there are many calls of which 
we don't even make it at scene. Uh, so when you talk about medical aids, for example, that's about 66% of what we run. There's many times that our engine companies are running across the district and they get canceled en route. Um, and so although our response times are poor, uh, it actually doesn't truly define um, how bad our response times are because there's many calls that we don't make it to. And as I stated previously, there are also multiple calls per month, um, up to the tune of 24 calls a month that we really? are not, we have all of our engines dedicated to other incidents. They're all, they're all assigned to other incidents and we have to rely upon outside agencies to respond. And many times they don't make it to scene either. So, I mean, right there, that's, that's over 200 incidents, almost close to 300 incidents that you're essentially unable to respond to. Um, are those primarily EMS? So, so what do you do for EMS service? Do you have a third party service that provides transport? So we provide uh, the first response. Uh, we do not provide transportation services. Uh, there's only two jurisdictions within our, um, there's three actually within our agency, our, our county, I should say, that provide transportation services. That's our bordering, um, two of the bordering agencies that we have in the Santa Maria Valley Fire and Contra Costa County Fire. They're the largest okay. protection district in our, our county. But uh, we do not transport, but we do provide services. And due to funding, uh, every organization throughout the county provides advanced life support ALS services to their citizens. We are, we are actually one of two, uh, Richmond, which is another agency um, to the far mm -hmm. west of our county, and ourselves are the only two agencies throughout the entire county that do not provide ALS services to our citizens. And that is purely um, a funding restraint and a challenge we have. So that's another substandard service level that our citizens unfortunately do not get from our engine-based operations. Incredible. Um, so, so with those response times, uh, and, and again, three-person staffing, do you have an on-duty shift commander uh, or, or who's, we do. who's ultimately command once three companies are on scene? Yeah, so obviously the, uh, the first arriving company officer will take command of any incident they arrive on. Um, any incident that we have within our jurisdiction that requires two um, fire engines and or greater uh, is going to be assigned the on-duty battalion chief. So okay. we have, as I stated, we have the three, we have the three stations. Um, those stations also are cross-staffed. We have a type one, a structural firefighting engine, a type three, a wildland fire engine, and a water tender. And depending upon uh, the type of the incident that we have, the members, uh, the company officers have to decide, are they taking the type one? Are they taking the type three? And then secondarily, um, a good majority, if not 60% of the land base of our jurisdiction is non-hydrogen. So we don't have any hydrants in 60% of our organization. So put that into consideration. So they will roll tandem, which means that the captain and all of our firefighters are trained uh, to be able to drive. Um, that okay. You will not get off probation if you cannot be an apparatus operator. And so the captain and the uh, firefighter, they will drive either the type one or the type three, and then the engineer will roll tandem with the water tender. So uh, our members are very well versed, are very dynamic. And again, if they're rolling with the water tender, that means that we have a fire, potentially a working fire, and a battalion chief will roll and they'll command the same. So, so you're already, you know, before the fact that you're already understaffed and and you're not even making the minimum need number of stations and personnel on scene, uh, or I'm sorry, throughout the district uh, for water supply for, you know, I mean, just your initial attack, you're you're already 
bare bones at best. So, um, okay. We, so, we are behind the power curve from go. Yes. Yeah. It, yeah. Those tones drop and then it's, it's already, uh, you're, you're playing catch up already. So, okay. So the, the, you have a fire board, they, they oversee the district and, and again, the cool thing about the fire service, uh, sometimes it's frustrating when you, when you talk to folks, especially folks from outside, don't understand how fire service varies from city to city, county to county. Can you tell us about the fire board, what their role is and, and how you use them and, and even how they get to that position to oversee the district? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And actually the fire board, um, or historically the lack thereof is actually a contributing factor to the situation we're in today. Um, I'll, I'll answer the question about the fire board, but historically uh, in the fire district, the fire district, the cities and the counties of which we protect, uh, the lack of the due diligence to manage the impacts from growth over time and not putting the appropriate mitigation measures on new development over the past 40 years is what mm -hmm. has created the deficit that we have today, okay? And so we've had over 20 years about a 1,500% growth rate. And there's been no additional mitigation measures, assessments, taxes, uh, the appropriate amount of what's called impact fees or community facility districts for operations of building stations. Those, uh, those mitigation measures have not been put in place, and that's primarily to the lack of effective governance. When I came in as fire chief in 2017, our fire board was an appointed fire board, which means that the land use agencies, the cities and the counties, um, I had nine board members when I started. And they were appointed, wow. and it was done by population. The city of Brentwood uh, has about 60 to 60, between 60 and 70,000 residents, the largest community within our jurisdiction. They appointed four board members. The city council appointed four board members. The city of Oakley has about, a, uh, about 40, between 40 and 50 residents. They appointed three board members. And in the unincorporated areas, uh, you know, they fill the remainder of the population base, and they appointed two board members. So you have elects, elected agencies, the land use agencies, the cities and the county, and they appointed board members, which reported back to the cities of the county, and sometimes city council members and or, or uh, yeah, city council members or the board supervisors members sat on our fire board from 2002 all the way till 2017. Uh, it was very difficult. It, it was political. There was uh, the authority really wasn't there. Uh, it was not an elected position. That is why when I came in in 17, and obviously with the support of our fire board, that was one of the top objectives I had was to correct our governance model. And it, we, it took us from 2017 until 2019 to actually go through the process of taking the appointed board and transitioning us to an elected board. And so it's just only been a year now, if you can believe that. We've been in a fire district. Wow. We consolidated in 2002 from these volunteer organizations to a career organization. And from 2002 to 2019, we did not have an elected board. And that's a lot of time that passed. And there's a lot of decisions in, in regards specific to growth that were not addressed. And we have, what I'm happy to also report now with the board, but with the authority of the board, they create the policy. Uh, the fire board has two employees, our legal counsel and myself. Every other member of the fire agency is my responsibility. I'm the one that hires, appoints, promotes, and manages everything below 
myself, and District Legal Counsel. District Legal Counsel fully represents the board in all matters related to me. Otherwise, Legal Counsel is my resource, and they represent the district and I. So the fire board really, uh, they are the ones that strategically identify where we're going to go. They create the organizational policy. They define in cooperation with me through negotiation, uh, my priorities, my annual objectives of what I'm going to do. And my job is to execute it on an annual basis. So again, um, that governance model is critically important. As I stated to you when we started, uh, we have the three stations today, the three station deficit and the three station growth challenge. We have, and I credit the fire board um, and the cities and the county for supporting us through this process, we have finally stopped the bleeding. And what I mean is, although we did not address past growth effectively, we have created the mechanisms, impact fees to build new stations and buy apparatus for the future, and also creating what is a district-wide community facility district, CFDs, to pay for the ongoing operations. Over the next 20 years, incrementally as each unit comes in, those fees will be assigned to every unit that comes in over the next 20 years, and we will be able to fully construct and fully operate an additional three fire stations in 20 years, but that does not address our existing three station deficit. And that today is what we're trying to correct and, and remedy. And so the fire board is instrumental in that, but they have to have the legitimate authority not only to create policy, to create resolution, and uh, be able to be accountable respectfully to themselves and not somebody else. And so um, it has been very challenging to not only get them to a position where they have that legitimate authority, and then now we're finally getting some momentum to correct um, the things that were not done in the past. So Brian, do they have a fire service background? Do they have any knowledge or is it, you know, do you have to bring them up to speed? I mean, obviously if they're gonna run for the board, um, you know, they, they have to have an understanding of knowledge, but do they have any, or any of them firefighters or former firefighters uh, in other capacities? Or do you literally have to bring these civilians into understanding what the fire service is and, and your goals? And, yeah, you know, it's, a, it's a hybrid. And it, so listen, it's it's a hybrid, and the only requirements, you know, 18 years of age, uh, you know, you need a uh, you need to be 18 years of age, a California citizen. You have to live within our jurisdiction, and then it's a normal election cycle. So anyone can run. They can run a campaign. People run the campaign, uh, and then they can get elected, you know, into into a position. Uh, and so right now, we do have uh, our board president is a. Uh, a veteran firefighter with uh, for the city uh, of Oakland. Um, none of the right. other members on our board, is, is, they are not. And so there's a hybrid. To answer your question, it's a hybrid. Uh, but even so, for the members, uh, you know, respectfully to the board president, you know, Oakland, you know, the city of Oakland and how Oakland operates and what they're done is very different uh, from East Contra Costa Fire. So uh, my board relations are very important to me. Uh, we meet on uh, a very regular basis. And uh, so the onboarding process and maintaining those relationships, educating about from labor management relations to strategy and tactics and operations to succession planning, strategic planning. Um, it is every board member is unique to themselves. What's challenging is, you know, every two years, uh, either two of the board members are up for re-election and or three board members are up for re-election, which means that your board can dramatically change every two years. And this November, we have two seats that are going to be open. 
is the first time uh, since the original board was established, and we've been in this position now for two years, um, that seats can change. And so that obviously changes the board dynamic. Right now, we're aligned. We know what our strategic initiatives are. We know what my annual goals and objectives are. They hold me accountable to them. And, uh, and we have been continuing a conversation since all of them came through the door. In November, that is subject to change. And depending upon who gets elected, uh, the onboarding process can be challenging because they're new to the community. Uh, they know we have a challenge. Um, and it really depends on their knowledge of not only the industry, but even more so our jurisdiction specifically. Okay. And then let's, let's quickly just talk about the funding um, for the district. Is the bulk of your funding from uh, tax revenue then? Yeah, so the way that we're um, developed and the guidelines, we, we were governed underneath the statute, the 1987 uh, Fire Protection Law and Statute, and we are funded primarily 97%. We get, there's some other measures and funds that came from outside agencies, but 97% of our funding is solely through property taxes. We do not receive any sales tax, any other tax. We are not, we're completely independent. So we're called an independent fire district. We are not, we serve the city of Oakley, the city of Brentwood and the unincorporated areas of the county, but we are not attached. We, they are also, legally not responsible to provide the services that we provide. Uh, the cities are required to provide fire protection services, but although our umbrella <clears throat> provides those services to their communities, they don't have the legal requirement to provide fire protection because we exist. So we are funded 97% through property taxes. Um, and that is why, if you think back to the 2008-2012 recession, and we're monitoring actively the COVID situation that we're in, if home prices drop, if, for, if foreclosures or short sales continue, it directly yeah. impacts our budget. And so uh, that is what we're, we're purely financed by is property taxes. We don't have multiple revenue streams, uh, which is detrimental to us. And, um, but that, again, it's very specific how our statute is drawn. Furthermore, for us to increase revenue to our fire district, we are very limited by statute and law of the ways of which we can increase revenue to the district. And that is through taxes and assessments. So we can do uh, benefit assess special benefit assessments. We can do parcel taxes um, to bring additional revenue to the district. But again, that impacts their property taxes they pay. And that is one of the biggest mm -hmm. challenges we have today is folks within our area, within California, uh, they feel that, and they are very adamant about not wanting to pay more taxes, but legally that is the only means that we have to be able to increase revenues. And that's why with our existing service level deficit, the challenges that we have is everyone agrees on our problem statement, but the real struggles we have is how do we correct these issues? And our path is assessments or taxes, and we're, we're identifying many alternatives to see what we can do in lieu of, uh, but right now, it, it really appears those are the two mechanisms that are the most viable, sustainable, and reliable mechanisms to correct the service level challenges that we have. So, um, you know, yeah, I mean, that, that's, how, that's how we're funded, and that kind of highlights the problem that we have. Yeah, and I think that walks us into to the press release, so we'll kind of dig into the meat of the, of the conversation here now about uh, the policy that you put out. So 
um, towards the end of June uh, on Facebook and, and, and you know, we, we picked up the story and published it and certainly had a lot of traffic. So um, you put out the press release uh, and I'll just read uh, a little bit of it here. It said, starting July 1, the fire district will only send firefighters inside a burning building if human life is at risk. Due to the extreme conditions resulting from a three-station deficit, East Coast, East, sorry, East Contra Coast, the Fire Protection District firefighters are being forced to spread themselves across three stations, not six, covering 250 square miles. This is pushing our firefighters to the limits as they respond to twice as many calls for help. Furthermore, the added strain of unbalanced automatic aid agreements with other county fire departments are becoming unsustainable. Uh, the, the district will now focus on containing the fire to the structure involved. Unfortunately, this defensive first operation strategy raises the risk, safety risk factors for families, businesses, and property within our communities just as 2000 fire, 2020 fire season is getting underway. So you put this announcement out, uh, Chief, and, and, and coming up to this, uh, you know, having to make this decision, um, why, why did you make the decision? I mean, what, what got you to make this announcement that July 1st, the level of service is going to have to change? Well, first, uh, Peter, that this decision has been uh, the hardest decision and directive I've had to give in my three years as, as a fire chief. It is something that I've been struggling with and I've been working through um, and really fighting through for the past year. This decision did not happen overnight. There are many influencing and driving forces that forced me to make this executive decision that I was disappointed, I am disappointed we had to make. There are, we have outside agreements uh, with outside agencies um, that are continuing to be strained. You know, we have what's called automatic aid agreements that are intended to be balanced at year end. Uh, they're mutually beneficial. We want to make sure that one agency isn't subsidizing another agency. And due to the lack of our resources, our aid agreements are anywhere from two to three to one. So every time we send a resource to them, they're sending two or three to us. And what folks also need to know is that within our county, we always and we have a standard operating policy that for all residential fires, we send five engine companies, type one engine companies, and two chief officers. A year ago, due to the lack of resources and imbalanced aid agreements, we had to reduce and send only three engine companies to all incidents. And if it was defined as working, that means we got it seen, there were smoke and flames, we would, we would get additional resources to fill the balance up to five. So a year ago, I was already sending less resources than we should, and I considered at that point, due to the safety of our members, of going defensive at that time, reassessing, um, and but we, labor and management agreed that we wanted to continue the best that we can. We were working on revenue mm -hmm. enhancements, revenue streams, correct the problem, it didn't happen. And so we had to, on July 1, make this change. So primarily, it was that, again, we're not sending the right amount of resources. And everyone that's most likely listening to this podcast understand that when we get compromised, when we get trapped, we're missing, anything may happen, we are our own rescue system. So we call upon ourselves. And I had to give the directive that when you arrive at scene now, and this is the big change, we're still sending three resources to residential structure fire. 
But if there is not a live safety, and if the fire is not going to get outside the container or the box, and if you can hold it, you will not call additional resources. One is obviously to make sure that we live within our means and that our members address the fires the best they can with the resources they have. And secondarily is I need to continue to respect the aid agreements I have that are automatic. And because if I continue to strain them and they're imbalanced when I really don't need them, they could potentially move to a mutual aid purely system, which is detrimental for everybody. So for that reason, I decided and I made the directive to say, listen, there's not life safety. If you can't keep it inside the box, you don't call for additional resources. Um, that will help the, um, the strain on our aid agreements. And secondarily is, uh, listen, our members are trained, <laughs> we're bred, and we want to go and we want to get it. And this is not what we're called to do. This is not the way we're called to operate. But we're covering 250 square miles of three engine companies and time and distance is something that we can't dismiss. And so when we get to a yeah. working incident, our members want to go in and get it, but I need to create the condition to saying that we will not overcommit, that we will obviously risk a lot to save a lot. But if we arrive at scene and we've done everything we can to identify and remove the fact that there is no life safety issues, not getting outside the box, we will start from a de defensive approach and slowly and methodically with three engine companies work to address and mitigate the problem. You know, the challenge I have on the situation is that taking this stance, there's been the misconception that members are going to sit idle and watch properties burn. Uh, and that really frustrates me because anyone that is within the industry knows that we are not conditioned to sit idle. And my members will do everything they possibly can to arrive at scene and mitigate the hazard, uh, protect life, protect property, protect their environment. And, and they'll, again, risk a lot to save a lot. But when you only have three engine companies, and we have some very large structures and homes uh, within our jurisdiction, uh, some of them um, it can be up to, I mean, 10,000 square foot. Uh, it is not rare to have a, a 45 to 5,000 square foot home. Uh, there's tons of those within our jurisdiction. Yeah. And it, it's easy to get overcommitted. So the, the defensive operations, um, it is a safety factor. Uh, there's been many influencing factors that have brought us to this point. And until we can address our resource issue and get um, five, six engine companies into our organization, this unfortunately is not be our operational tactic. So we are unfortunately going to lose more property, but I'm doing it in the best interest of protecting the safety of our members. And, and just, okay, to confirm, and you kind of mentioned it before, it's not a fully defensive. So if you roll up, you've got a light to moderate smoke condition, uh, looks like it's a room and contents fire. Um, you're doing your size up. Are you, are you taking a line in um, to a bedroom or, you know, even if it's a food on the stove with the extension to the cabinets, it's, it's not, a, you know, it's not, it has not consumed the entire room and spreading down the hallways. Are you dropping a line and getting that, that crew in? Yeah, and I, it, it, so um, we all know that every situation is very unique to itself. Um, yes, I have put the yeah. parameters in for the chief officers and or company officers and they arrive at scene that they, they can make that executive decision if they go or if they don't go. I think the, okay. so the answer to your question is if they can mitigate it safely with the three engine companies and understanding mm -hmm. that there's not life safety, they're not calling more, they can transition from the defensive to okay. an offensive approach. 
But if there's not a life safety, it's not going outside the box, you're not getting more than three engine companies. So they need to understand they cannot ever put themselves in a position to be compromised. They have to be very slow and methodical in what it is that they do. And so depending upon the situation, yeah, I mean, look, you have a pot on the stove, mitigate it. Go in and take care of it, right? You do your 360. You know, you can do the visual through the window. It's just a pot on the stove. It's something that can be extinguished with an extinguisher or otherwise. They're going to take care of that. It is the, when you have the room and content that is extended to the attic and it's blowing up the eaves. Yeah. Uh, we need to, we need to question. Um, I, that's something that we can't handle with three engine companies. And now if there's life safety, again, risk lock, save a lot. But if there is not, you got to mitigate it with your three engine companies. So, I mean, in that situation, we're not going to send guys to the roof. We're, we, we're in West Coast, and what we do, we're heavy vertical ventilation. That's, that's something we practice. That's something we do. And at this time, where we are, uh, we're very calculated of doing any vertical operations because, again, we don't have the resources mm-hmm. to support the groundwork that needs to be done below it. So, um, so it is case by case, but there, there are many times right now, again, they arrive at scene and they're so heavily involved. They can't make an interior attack, and it does. It does unfortunately create, and we do lose more property because of it. Okay. And and, and so this transition you mentioned earlier, right? That the firefighters are wired to to go inside and, and make the magic happen, and and you know knock it down and and pull out and, and do the overhaul and all that kind of stuff. So, what was the reaction from the members? Uh, you know, how, how do you get buy-in uh, from? from the members when they're, you know, they're taking an oath to protect life and property. And obviously life is, is the most important part and property is a secondary to life, uh, whether it's a firefighter's life or a citizen's life. But how, how did you get the buy-in from them to change those procedures um, full well knowing that you can't be, you know, at the scene all the time to ensure that it's being handled and obviously you have to trust your officers to, to make those decisions. Um, so, so, how do you get the buy-in and how do you work with the office to officers to ensure that they fully understand what those policies are? Fair question. So look, number one is, uh, with my leader's intent or any policy that's created, I have no doubt and hundred percent confidence that not only the line members from the, uh, probationary firefighter up to the season captain, uh, through all my season battalion chiefs, any directive that I lay down, they're going to follow. Um, and they demonstrate that on a daily basis, regardless of their personal opinions on it. We will debate up until the point of policy being executed, but once it's done, uh, they will, and they have demonstrated they will always follow. They, uh, they're very professional in that way. Buy-in, however, um, in a lot of ways, I've been on an island on this. And um, I, again, I came through the ranks, so I fought fire with these guys. I, I was a line chief officer for many years. Um, I'm very much a servant leader. They are my priority. Their families are my priority. Um, I love these guys. And I burnt, and I'm burning, a ton of political capital, relationally capital. Um, I don't have buy-in. And the reason is that, again, our guys, they want to be a model organization, and they deserve to be part of a model organization, and we are not. And so they are being professional, and they are following my directive. And I'm embarrassed and I'm disappointed that I have to give the directive that I'm doing. With that being said, they follow it. And uh, it is really disappointing that we're in this situation. I'm doing everything I can within my power every single day 
to find the funding, to get the resources they need to do the jobs that they want to do. So um, they, they're overrun every day. My members are tired. I mean, we, we had a point that, we, I mean, I have 36 members in my organization, and there was a period of time not too many months ago I had eight members on workers' comp. They're just getting wow. overrun. And it is not sustainable on what we're doing. And so I'm trying to demonstrate to my behaviors daily that I'm executing and I'm doing everything I can to correct and remedy our revenue and ultimately our service level challenges. So our members want to do more. And it's my responsibility to give them the tools and the resources to be effective at their job. And they're doing the best with what they have. So them supporting me and my directive, it doesn't mean they buy in to what it is that we're doing. I, I think that any agency that has to have the operational stance that we do would be somewhat embarrassed or disappointed that that's how we have to operate because we have some of the most aggressive and trained and prepared members, but we just don't have the tools and resources to do our work. So, it's tough. It, it, and so that, I mean, you know, you mentioned it, the, the, they're already overextended, right? So in, in the release that you guys have put out, uh, it mentioned that you'll no longer do public education and fire station tours. That's right. So what, what shifts do you guys work? You work 48, 96, two on, four off. Okay. 48, 96. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. in that 48, good. Okay. Well, no, so, okay. the, so the that's, that's another part of the, yeah, no, and that's <laughs> just it. I mean, our members are running. Um, our members are running. Uh, I mean, we, we, we've been, busy i mean to say the least uh you know working all the way through the fourth of july to date um our members continue to get run hard i mean we had the last 48 hour shift we had uh, just recently two sets ago our members didn't sleep for 36 of those 48 hours um, on the second day of their set they got a little bit of sleep uh in the early morning and they continued to be running uh for the rest of the night so i mean right now in addition to taking a defensive stance, we had to cancel all intercompany-based public education events because our members are having, they're being challenged daily for operational readiness, maintaining their training, and also taking care of themselves, preparing for the next call. And so we had to cut all the nice-to-haves. And public education is mm -hmm. critical of, of expanding our message to influencing the community, uh, to educating the youth. I was influenced by it. It was one of the motivating factors for me aspiring to become a firefighter. And it, it doesn't have the right look to when station tours aren't available. We won't go do the birthdays. We won't do the education events. Um, but the bottom line is our members need to be prepared for the next call coming in. They're falling behind on their training. Um, we're at a point right now, multi-company drills, <laughs> they, they, they don't happen. They can't happen. Because yeah. every time we get there, we're end up cutting line and we're responding to calls. Uh, and COVID, I mean, we haven't even talked about COVID, but the COVID and being able to do our EMS training and get people together. We, every Friday we used to do what's called the EMS Friday. And due to the restrictions and the challenges of what we're doing from outside consultants helping us with our training, it, it's compacted it. So we're being creative at COVID, the lack of resources, our call volume. Um, it has been challenging, you know, to say the least. But uh, yeah, they, they, they're, they're mission critical at this point uh, for running calls 24-7. Um, so it, it's tough, to say the least. Yeah, and, and you know, so you mentioned, right, I mean, it's, it's the exhaustion, it's it's the constant running around. 
So, you know, some departments that are larger, they do some in-service training. They, you know, sometimes do some out-of-service training. So you don't even really have the ability to take crew out. Uh, or what if you have to have a rig checked, um, you know, some PM and that kind of work? Are, are you putting them on the wildland rig or the tanker when – or tanker, I'm sorry – when their front line rig has yeah. to get checked. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so we cross staff, like we said, the three engines. So there's a lot of times if we have to service the engines that their their primary response engine is going to be the type three, uh, the wildland. Okay. Um, they, they won't, they won't primarily be the water tender. It doesn't seat enough people, um, yeah. but they will go on their type three or their type one. Um, our fleet. I mean, you know, when I came into the organization in 17, uh, we were very much behind our capital and equipment replacement plans. Uh, we really didn't have a plan. We were not funding. So we were deferring all maintenance to try to just maintain our, our staffing levels. Um, and so, I mean, right now our engines, I mean, all of our engines are, uh, you know, between 12 to 14 years old. Uh, we do have three new engines in route. Hopefully August 1 to be put in, in place. Also, when I came in, all of our members, their gear was at year 10, uh, SCBAs, all their turnouts. Uh, we have been fortunate enough that we've replaced everybody. So, you know, our stations and our apparatus over the past three years have been behind the power curve, but we've been able to correct that. Um, and so, yeah, them maintaining the engines, maintaining the stations, maintaining the training, um, we're being very innovative and creative um, to okay. do what we need to do on a daily basis. And that's great. And, and you know, see, so you, you kind of mentioned that too, right? So it's there's also the cost of, of, of everything else that's used besides the equipment and, and you know, obviously all staffing stations uh, and equipping stations. So, I mean, let, let's talk about, uh, I know in our earlier discussion, you talked about the, the turnover the department had um, up until a few years ago, uh, again, due to the uncertainty of the future of the department. Um, so, so tell us about the turnover you've had um, the last, you know, 10 years in the district. Yeah. So it's been, uh, it's been a roller coaster. So, you know, back in 2002, when the organization was originated, we were actually two person engine company across the board. Um, and we had two person engine companies. Um, and we were actually eight stations at that point with two person engine companies. Um, we quickly identified, uh, that that was not a, the safest operation for us to be running. Uh, we made a big turn to be able to go from two-person engine companies to three-person engine companies, and that reduced the eight stations down to five. Um, and then we had the 2008 hit, where we went from five stations down to three. When I came in in 2017, we were actually four stations. Um, but at the four-station model, we were having to get money from the cities and the county as band-aids. We're using safer grants as band-aids. It was not sustainable. We, we did not have sustainable funding to maintain that four-station and we were also deferring all pay increases. We were deferring all capital equipment replacement plans to fund that fourth station. One of the hardest things I had to do when I came in was recommend the board to shutter the fourth station so we could live within our means and we can maintain um, not only the, the funding to be able to uh, take care of the stations, but we also, our members, getting to your point, is our members at that time were between 40 to 50% paid less than all other agencies within the county. So just think about that. Yeah. 40, and I don't care if you're a painter, if you're a doctor, if you're a welder or a plumber, you want to be paid competitively within your industry. And so not only did we shutter the fire station, I also recommended, and I worked with the fire board through the negotiations process to try to get our members closer to market. 
Why is that? And from 2012 to 2017, when I came in, now I have 35 firefighters in my district today. All right. When I, from 2012 to 2017, we lost 38 firefighters. We lost 38 firefighters. I do not have That's one employee in my organization right now. I have a five-year gap in my succession plan where I do not have one firefighter. Everyone that we hired, they came in and they realized the funding that they were on was not sustainable. And they knew when those funds would exhaust that they were going to lose their job. And we were never able to secure revenue in that for, for that four station. So people would come in, they get their experience, and they would leave. And we did that for a five-year period. And that's why when I came in, we were about to re-execute those agreements for the four station. Deferring pay, which was a problem. We were deferring maintenance, which we were coming to the 10 years on multiple pieces of equipment mm -hmm. and what we were wearing, what we were doing. And I said, no, we need to stop that. And we have to become more competitive in the market to address our retention challenges. So it was very difficult for me when I came in to convince and get support of the board to not only shutter a station, but also work to pay firefighters more. You see how the optics on that is we're going to shut a station, but then pay firefighters more. And so right now, what I'm happy to announce is we are sustainable at a three-station model. And our members are now 15% within market. So the 15% of average of the agencies around, we've been able to be at least competitive within the market. I'm happy to announce since 2017 when I came in, um, there were people in the process of transitioning at that time, and a member did leave at that point, but we have not lost anybody for the past three years. And furthermore, we actually have brought and hired more people, and I'm happy to announce that two people that were with us that I previously left had returned to our agency. So right now we're on this, uh, we're all, the morale, unfortunately, is, as bad as the situation is, our morale is okay to some degree. It's obviously diminishing because of the current situation that we're in. Uh, mm -hmm. And all we're missing is the revenue. Uh, to be able to get people believe in the strategic plan that we have now. People know that we're fighting to be competitive uh, within the market for our members. Uh, they know that we're taking care of the equipment. They know that we're being very wise about how we're doing business and people are buying into the plan. However, if we do not secure dedicated, sustainable revenue to address our three station deficit in the very near term, I'm, I'm afraid that people are going to start reconsidering because who, who wants to continue to be an organization that's purely defensive or, I'm sorry, transitional and that yeah. is struggling to be able to do what we want to do? So um, our succession planning has been a challenge to the point to where I know that because of our five-year gap of no employees, that in 2019, I hired six additional firefighters, so we're heavy, to prepare for attrition in 2020 and 21, and three people have already left. And we had three people to fill the positions in 21. We planned for another three to leave. And we already have them in our system. And I know that in 2022, I'm going to have to hire additional six firefighters for attrition that will occur in 2024. And we should be able to get through that gap. So the board has been gracious and they've been supporting the plan to pre-hire and use one-time funds to bring people in to address our success and planning challenges. So we've been able to mitigate that. Uh, but in the very near future, you know, we, we need to get revenue to be the destination department that our citizens deserve and our firefighters deserve. Otherwise, you know, we, we may have another uh, retention challenge.
incredible. That's just incredible. It's, it's one thing after another. Literally, it's the perfect storm. Um, as everything just kind of funnels into one spot, which again is the department, but it's it's the funding, the staffing, the safety, um, the personnel. Well, let me give you an, so this this. I mean, on the 4th of July, right? This gives you an example of how busy our members are on yeah. the 4th of July. We had, uh, from 5 o'clock, when, you know, 4th of July starts popping off, we had 114 calls for service, 29 fires. We had two injuries related to fires, an adult male and a child. We burnt 125 acres of vegetation. And we have a prevention bureau in coordination with the law enforcement agencies. We, we gave 70 citations and seized 100 pounds of fireworks because fireworks are illegal in our jurisdiction, actually within our county. And it was probably the most, it was spectacular in a negative way, uh, driving around our communities because all commercial fireworks were canceled and you're driving around our community, it looked like a war zone. And so that three engine companies, managing that. Obviously we stretched and we stressed not only auto aid and mutual aid tremendously that night, but that just gives you an example of how busy we are. Incredible. I mean, it's just, it's fascinating. So on, on the 4th of July, everyone's trained, right? I mean, and, and I think that was the, the situation across the country this year with COVID and folks being kind of forced to, to entertain themselves yes. for the holiday weekend. So were you able to rely on any of your aid partners or were you pretty much um, no absolutely and this is what is being like the the contra Costa county executive chiefs so it's it's all the chiefs amongst the county um and very progressive uh we we meet uh every other month to deal with not only legislative operational other challenges and they are aware of how we get impacted we actually stood up within the county two task forces uh, to where we, we, you know, ourselves, we put a, we assigned a water tender. So we upstaffed and provided a water tender and multiple agencies upstaffed. And instead of just leaving those units, you know, dedicating them to their district, um, we actually built two task forces that went down and literally drove the main thoroughfares and or freeways throughout the county. And any incident that came in, they jumped on it. And with the goal and the intent of trying to keep the other units that are within the jurisdiction dedicated in the stations, uh, less impacted. So we heavily used the task forces that night. Unfortunately, obviously, right, the, the ability to be able to have two task forces on the street on every day, it, it doesn't happen. Uh, but being proactive um, and having all agencies in the county providing at least a, uh, you know, a type three, a type six, um, a water tender and or a chief officer, uh, we collectively were able to mitigate that night. So I gave you the numbers. That was our jurisdiction. But the county yeah, as a whole, yeah. um, it was off the chain. It was off the chain. Incredible. Uh, so we need to follow up on this. I mean, you know, we need to follow up in six months and see where things are at um, for you guys, for the district, for you as a chief. Um, I'd be curious to see what the citizens say, right? I mean, you know, six months in, get a, a real good evaluation of where things are at. Um, what have you heard from other chiefs at this point? I'm sure if your phone is ringing off the hook, your email is blowing up in the in the days after the, the announcement came out. Uh, what kind of feedback were you receiving? Oh, it, it was feedback across the board uh, from, you know, Everything from, you know, this should have been done a long time ago to what the heck are you thinking to I have a lot of concerns. 
um, there was a lot of education and understanding and communicating a move like this and trying to get ahead of it and front-loading it and letting other chief officers know or the chiefs uh, know what the intent is, what we're trying to do, what is the operational policy that's going to support. So when we have mutual and auto aid, how does it impact them? Because their operational policies obviously are different. I mean, what happens when an adjoining agency is first due, right? They're conditioned and trained mm -hmm. to run the play like they normally do. So how do we communicate that? So yeah, uh, throughout the county, but with once we got through that initial shock of, are you kidding me? You're actually considering this. Uh, there, it, the pendulum shifted dramatically to where they empathized and supported and said, okay, we support the play. How is it that we can help you? We're sorry you're in this situation. We understand the methodology. We understand the driving forces uh, that you have to do this. And, you know, we want to support you. Um, I have, our county is huge. And there's agencies all the way in the far west county that they find sending their engines here on a regular basis. Um, and we don't go to them at all. And so for that reason, right now, the county executive chiefs have, we just recently had a meeting um, earlier this month, actually, and have stressed and we have discussed the negative impact our jurisdiction continues to have on their, their position. So they, um, we are in the process of identifying how it's best to communicate that to let people know um, what's going on. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I would say that, you know, the other chiefs and the other agencies and everyone, um, there, there is good support, but the reality is we got to fix it and the responsibility is mine to fix it. And between yeah. now and November, we kind of move the lever a little bit is so right now, what I'm trying to do is number one, be transparent. Number two, uh, communicate effectively. I'm trying to inform and educate all the stakeholders within our jurisdiction, all large property owners. I'm trying to get contact with every single resident that respectfully is actively disengaged because they're managing and running their own businesses and our lives. And we're not really important until they need us. And I'm trying to inform them and let them know what's going on. I'm trying to do my due diligence also to make sure that we don't, that although taxes are uh, the immediate correction to this, but I'm also trying to demonstrate I'm doing everything at the federal, the state, the local level that we are working with our land use agencies. And I'm exploring every other alternative in lieu of taxes to increase revenues to our district. That education campaign and the exploring and kicking over every rock is going to continue from today. And it has been for the last year or so. It will continue up until the November board meeting. The November board meeting, the second Wednesday and or around there, because that's actually a holiday in November, we are going to be looking at all the federal, state, and the local initiatives. And if they pass, is there any, any positive impacts or negative impacts to the fire district? And what other conversations along the way have produced additional revenue to address our station level deficits? If any of those measures, any of our practices actually re resolve a one and or two station deficit, then we may do a measure to address the Delta. Uh, and so right now, every day, I'm trying to uh, get that done in November. We'll make decisions, but uh, the executive fire chiefs, they're, they're part of that process and um, helping communicate and validate the realities of our situation. Well, Brian, I, I just wanna say thank you for joining us today. Um, again, what you're going through, I'm sure there's other departments out there 
in parts of the country that are going through similar circumstances. Like you mentioned earlier, right, every department is different. So similar circumstance, just whatever, the, whatever, if it's a staffing issue, station issue, apparatus issue, um, how can they reach out to you? If somebody has some suggestions or some ideas, how can they uh, connect with you? No, and I love that. And um, look, I uh, am here to be part of this network. If there's any other fire chief, aspiring fire chief uh, in the nation that is experiencing anything that I'm experiencing, if there's any way that I can help you, um, I'd be more than willing uh, to have conversations, see how we can support each other. Um, my our, our website is www.eccfpd.org or East Country Pasta Fire Protection District.org. And my email is uh, first initial last name B H E L M I C K at eccfpd.org. And my phone number is 925-584-8468. I, um, another thing too is that any fire chief in California, if you're in an organization where you have a low percentage rates from the percentage of ad valorem or property taxes, um, and there's been a lot of growth that has happened within your organization, uh, and Proposition 13, that locked in the, the rates of which we get as a fire district. And if you're being negatively impacted because you don't have those mitigation measures, you have existing deficits, I'd love to talk to you. And the reason being is, listen, East Contra Costa's fire situation, uh, I do not believe it is unique to us. Um, the state will not consider a state solution for an individual fire district. However, if there are other fire districts that are underfunded due to Proposition 13 and didn't have the appropriate mitigation measures, and you're being overrun operationally and relying too much on auto aid or mutual aid, I'd love to communicate and potentially even develop a coalition to amplify our problem to be able to correct our situation. So um, listen, if anyone's listening and there is about succession planning processes, board relation practices, or anything that I can do, um, I would love to serve you and help you. So um, I, I appreciate if anyone has any recommendations for me, um, I am open to constructive criticism. If there's something I'm not exploring, something I'm not, I'm not doing, um, I'm open uh, for any recommendations. So it goes both ways. And I appreciate you, uh, Pete, for providing the opportunity to share a story. And uh, I'd love to reconvene later on as we approach 21 to see how the situation's evolved. Yeah, I wish I wish you and your members, you know, and really the community, you know, a lot of luck um, later in the year with everything that's going on. And hopefully, you know, hopefully you can pass some, uh, some policy to get some additional revenue in. Um, Brian, so th thank you for coming on. I, re I really appreciate it. I'm glad we had a chance to share some more of the story that might not have gotten out. Um, but really, again, unfortunately, there's other folks that are out there in the same position. So hopefully they can listen to this, get some ideas, connect with you if they've got something that can help you or they, they, they can receive some assistance from you. So again, Brian uh, Helmick, Fire Chief in East Contra Costa uh, Fire Protection District in California. Uh, thank you for joining us, everybody. Thank you. Um, stay safe. And again, a big thank you to MSA Globe for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Firefighting is essential for our communities, but it's not easy. With increased heat loads and toxic substances, the job today is more dangerous than ever. At MSA, your health and safety drive us to develop highly advanced safety equipment to protect you on the job. MSA's Globe Gear is performance and protection in perfect balance. 
It's designed to meet the challenges you face every day to help keep you safe and healthy during your career and beyond. Get the full story at msafire.com globe.